The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. Today on Government Matters, family leave for federal employees. Representative Don Beyer tells you about the new rules and whether they go far enough. Artificial intelligence at the Department of Homeland Security. Acting CIO Beth Capello on the new technology. And cybersecurity at the Office of Personnel Management, the most concerning risk the agency needs to fix. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out this morning. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The 2020 NDAA provides federal employees with 12 weeks of paid parental leave. The Office of Personnel Management is expected to issue guidance about how agencies should implement the new policy. Congressman Don Beyer represents Virginia's 8th District and was a co-sponsor of a paid family leave bill. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Marjorie, very much. What was your reaction to this um, policy and, and how do you think it's going to play out? Well, first of all, I was thrilled. Uh, we've been introducing this for year after year, and we have been introducing just for women. It was paid maternity leave for 12 weeks. And the, the best deal we had on our side was there was a Congressional Budget Office that scored it positively, which means it actually saved the taxpayers money because the cost of somebody leaving and you have to hire somebody new, mm -hmm. takes six months to get them on board and then train them, et cetera, et cetera. So this was a, a good thing. And we were never able to get it passed as a standalone bill. But when we included it in the National Defense Authorization Act, um, by some slate of hand, they said, well, let's include dads too, make a paid parent, uh, paternity leave. And, uh, and it passed the House and miraculously stood up in the Senate. So this is really perhaps the, the biggest step forward in terms of benefits for federal employees in a long time. What do you think it will mean for the federal workforce beyond, of course, people taking it? How will it improve the workforce, in your opinion? Well, I think one of the things that we'll do, since we don't have paid family medical leave nationally, and you know there are big corporations that do it, but many, many, many businesses don't have it. So I think it makes the federal government an ever more attractive place to work. And as, as you know well, a huge part of our workforce is getting near retirement age. So we, we're going to have to recruit the best and brightest from the next generation. To, to, to keep our workforce strong. You know, it gets smaller every year. Um, I think the ratio of federal worker to U.S. citizen is the lowest it's been in our lifetimes. But, so we really need the people who say, I really want to go work for the federal government. And I, I want to do it at least partly because I can be able to raise a family. As uh, some, some representatives have, or, and senators have looked at this bill, um, it appears that some employees may not be covered. Uh, how is that going to play out? Uh, well, I think that was, um, I would say, a mistake in the drafting. I, I don't think I realized it till after the fact, and they said some of these specific positions are left out because of the way it was written. So I think in the coming year, we will try to fix that because we'd... Uh, there may be one or two categories that you'd want to exclude. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but really it was intended to, to serve everyone that's a full-time government employee. And you noted that you know you sort of got this passed in an interesting uh, window of opportunity. You yeah. still think you'll be able to correct um, the exceptions, uh, even though this window is sort of passed? Yeah, but it will probably take most of this 2020 year. But then, for example, if we use the Defense Authorization Bill, the NDAA, that again will come up in June for we, we may include it again there. Maybe if it's just this little fix, we can do it on a consent calendar and get it 
do it standalone. But I think we'll all want to fix it. Sure. You, uh, unless someone comes up with a compelling reason why they shouldn't be included, but I haven't heard that. Sure. You, you also, um, you know, mentioned kind of the role of the federal government as it compares to other private employers. Do you think that, um, you know, the federal government may influence some companies also to take a look at their parental leave policies? Uh, I think so, and I hope so. I mean, that was part of the goal. Uh, as a Democrat, I, I and in a nation with our birth rate the lowest has been in 30 years. My, my daughter on the way to work um, talked about, you know, all of her millennial friends not having children or only having one child. You know, what happens with the next uh, silver tsunami? So we, we need to be thinking about how we make this country as child-friendly as possible. And that taking parental leave across the, the, the whole economy is a very helpful step. I, I want to pivot for a moment to um, government shutdowns. I know this is an area where you focus some uh, legislative attention. What are you doing there? Well, I, I want to be in the position where I never am part of another governmental shutdown. It just devastates our local economy in the Washington metro area. My little wonderful congressional district has more federal employees than any district, 86, 87,000. Um, but it's not just that, because it affects every district in the country. Uh, so, and it, and it feels like a failure of governance when we can't get to a, a deal on a budget. So with Senator Tim Kaine, another wonderful Virginia senator, he and I have the End Government Shutdown Act, which says in the event of a, sh there won't be a shutdown. If we can't get a budget deal, we'll automatically revert to last year's budget. But in Congress, we can't do any work except emergency legislation and focus on the budget until we get that done. So as legislators, we've become uh, irrelevant, useless, until we do our job and get a budget passed. And do you think that's the best way then to motivate um, representative senators to avoid a shutdown? I hope so. Actually, an even stronger way is Senator Mark Warner's bill that would deny them pay, um, but we don't think they'd ever vote for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's an even stronger way, but that's less likely to pass. And, you know, um, what did your, your constituents tell you about the shutdown? What, what are the, um, you know, consequences beyond the fact that, of course, the government isn't functioning? Um, do you, how do you think it sort of makes the government weaker? Well, it, first of all, when you stop, you know, the, every process has three parts, you know, beginning, a middle, and an end. And the stopping and starting don't create very much value. The middle is where everything gets done. So when you take people out of the workforce for five days or 13 days or 26 days and then they go back in, everything has to start up again. And we really see it, uh, I see it acutely in the local economy, but this is probably true across the country. There are all kinds of other people who don't get uh, the back pay. Government contract workers are just out of luck the entire time. All the waitresses and car wash people and mechanics and everybody that serves the rest of us, they don't have any income and no one's going to make that up later. It's just a really devastating economic hit and unnecessary. What do you think are the prospects for your legislation? Obviously, you think Senator Warners are not great. Do you think you have a better shot? Uh, yeah, it, as with so much big legislation, uh, there's no immediate urge to do it right now. We just, in fact, kept the government open with, without much threat of shutdown. Um, so it may take us two or three or four years, but I think Senator Kane and I are going to continue to push it because I just, there may be one or two outliers, but I don't know any of the 535 senators or congressmen who say, oh, let's have a good shutdown. Thank you so much, Representative Byer. Thank you, Marjorie, very much. Up next, using new technology at the Department of Homeland Security, straight ahead on Government Matters, acting CIO Beth Capello on how she plans to utilize artificial intelligence at the agency. You're watching ABC7.
The Department of Homeland Security wants to use artificial intelligence to sort through past performance data from contractors. It's one of several efforts to incorporate new technology into the agency's work. Beth Capella is the new Acting Chief Information Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks for being here. Thank you. What are your top priorities since taking over this new role? Uh, so um, this is this is exciting for me. I've been part of the Department of Homeland Security since its creation. Um, and one of the things that I'd really like to tackle while I'm in this new role is modernizing our network infrastructure. Uh, we have so many priorities that are dependent on capacity, uh, a resilient network, um, and capability throughout the United States and frankly throughout the world. So um, number one priority is modernizing the network. What are the challenges there? I assume scope is, is part of it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So um, we have had the current network infrastructure uh, construct and architecture uh, for about 15, 16 years. And so, you know, it's a, it's a shift for the people. It's a shift for the technology. Um, and certainly right now we have a contract shift uh, for, the, for the community. Everybody is familiar with the new EIS contract. Um, and we are preparing our fair opportunities right now. And being able to leverage that contract into its full uh, capability in order to deliver on our mission is, uh, again, number one priority for DHS. What will the benefits uh, be of seeing that modernization come to fruition? So we have, um, as many folks are aware, DHS uh, serves uh, the United States across uh, the geography, right? We're in some really interesting and remote locations along the southern and northern borders. Um, and then we're in population dense areas, obviously, international airports are the uh, airport infrastructure for TSA. So I think that um, geographic diversity makes things challenging. Uh, we don't always have capacity in the places where the mission needs to operate. So as we look at modernizing the environment and ensuring that we have capacity and resilience, uh, the bandwidth, the backhaul, uh, I think those are going to be some of the bigger challenges. Um, and certainly, uh, just because we're in a population-dense area doesn't mean that it's going to be any easier. Um, but, but I would submit that the borders are probably our biggest challenge area right now. What's a, a realistic timeline to be thinking about the, a project of this size, do you think? Um, I would say, if we look at the last time we did this, uh, we had some pretty straightforward uh, long poles in the tent, if you will, specifically uh, the tactical communications network, the P25 network that supports our radio communications. Getting those circuits transitioned seemed to be a bit more challenging um, than, than the rest of it, mainly because they don't have physical addresses, right? So we're, we're operating off a lat long in really remote areas, and um, just being able to find the locations to get the circuits transitioned was a bit difficult. Um, scope and size. Uh, DHS is a uh, third largest federal agency, so we have a lot of physical sites that we're going to need to transition and modernize. And with the size and scope, there are individual challenges at those physical locations. You know, I mentioned geography, I mentioned population density. Uh, those are all things that we're going to have to contend with as we begin to convert the network. I know that DHS, like a lot of federal agencies, is also looking to some new technology from artificial intelligence to analytics. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? So I think um, there's a lot of exciting work around analytics. Um, frankly, DHS, um, specifically some of our components, have been leveraging analytics for years 
in the uh, mission operations space. You can imagine at uh, Customs and Border Protection, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, um, are in the intelligence space, obviously, analytics has been a, 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 key, um, a key technology. But what I'm looking at right now is being able to leverage that analytics capability in our back office. Um, and as it refers to the network specifically, how do we leverage analytics to improve our resilience? How do we uh, leverage analytics in a predictive manner from a maintenance perspective? Um, how do we improve our mean time to restore uh, capability when there is an outage. Um, so I think those are some really important um, and exciting ways that we're going to be able to leverage analytics even in a back office capability. You, you sort of hinted at um, one of the interesting parts about DHS is how many different kinds of organizations you have under under the agency. Um, I assume there's some differences within those organizations in terms of progress on using different technologies. Are there uh, ways they can kind of learn from each other, do you think? Yes, absolutely. And, um, and I appreciate your recognizing uh, the disparate mission set within DHS. One, it makes us incredibly interesting. And we have capability that's developed to support specific mission sets, right? So again, I mentioned CBP and ICE or FEMA, TSA. They're developing technology that specifically supports uh, their activities. But one of the great things I get to do as the acting CIO is uh, we have a CIO council and we get to bring all of that capability together and those best practices from a technology standpoint. And we get to talk about those uh, and share information uh, CIO to CIO and look at ways to leverage what's happening in an individual component and maybe turn that technology to apply in another component. And that's really exciting. When you do that, sorry, just about a minute to go, but when you do that, what are the challenges? Why is maybe it harder to, to do something in CBP than TSA or vice versa? Um, money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, it, and it also, you know, we, we're young. Um, DHS now, we've, we've been around for se almost 17 years, um, which in the grand scheme of things makes us, makes us still pretty youthful. So um, bringing our processes together. Again, we had uh, disparate components from other parts of the federal government that had their way of doing business, right, managing their appropriated dollars, managing their investments in technology. So I think um, as we begin to mature as a department, um, we will be able to capitalize on those synergies in using technology in more efficient and more effective ways. It's a great place to work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Up next, cybersecurity risk at the Office of Personnel Management. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the biggest cyber concerns at the agency and how the office can address them. You're watching ABC7. The Office of Personnel Management could be unable to restore its IT systems if a data breach occurs. The agency's Inspector General has 47 recommendations for how OPM can improve its cybersecurity framework. Michael Esser is Assistant Inspector General for Audits at OPM. Thanks for being here. Nice to be here. Let's start by talking about the report. Uh, what did you study in this document? So the annual FISMA report is an audit where we look at the information security controls of the agency on an annual basis and uh, there's a multitude of, of metrics that, that we look at and uh, uh, grade the scores in those metrics and it all rolls up to a, an overall score for the agency. What were the main takeaways in, in this year's uh, version? So this year's report is, is fairly similar to prior years, the last few. 
where what we saw is issues that a lot of which are related to turnover and leadership is, is a problem at OPM. Uh, we saw some problems with system security and stability. And, and generally speaking, there was a lack of following and, and implementing uh, policies and procedures that are in place. You had a long list of recommendations. What do you think yes. are the most pressing ones for them to, to make changes? I, I don't know that I would single out any, any individual or, or a few recommendations that, that are most pressing. Uh, there's a number of areas across the board that, that need to be addressed. And I think our biggest concern is, is just the aggregation of, of all of those weaknesses creates an issue where there's there's concern with with the information systems at OPM. And how did this year's version compare to last year's? Did you see some progress? We did. We we saw we saw a gradual improvement and we've seen that over the years uh, you know going all the way back to 2015 when the breach occurred. We have seen significant improvement since then. And and since this current maturity model of, of scoring the FISMA results has been put in place. Uh, OPM has scored what's called a level two where uh, policies, procedures, and strategy is defined uh, each year. But I think, I think there has been gradual improvement over that, those years. It sounds like you think the leadership is, is one of the issues in making uh, more progress, that you think the turnover may be inhibiting that? I think it has in the past. There, there's, there's been significant turnover at, at the CIO level as well as uh, the OPM director level uh, the last several years. We are encouraged by uh, the current CIO leadership team in place. They've, they've been on board for about a year now and, and they're taking significant steps that, that show us they understand you know, how to get their hands around the issues. What was OPM's response to your findings? Are they, do they concur with, with some of um, the issues you identified? They do. They generally concur with, with almost all of the issues we've identified. You know, there's, there's some variants of disagreement, but uh, generally speaking, they agree. One of the issues that we have, though, is that there's, there's because of the turnover and other issues that are involved, there hasn't been a lot of progress in closing recommendations over the years. Uh, that said, this past year there had been an improvement. There was eight recommendations that, that had been outstanding that were closed, uh, which, which was you know, not a lot, but it's more than had been closed in the past. If they're able to take a few um, key steps, what would you recommend? It sounds like maybe some steps could address multiple recommendations, right? I agree, I agree. There's, there's a, a modernization plan that they are developing that it, it just needs to be further developed and implemented. Uh, there, there's things that touch on um, the, uh, for example, documenting the in enterprise architecture. It's, it's a huge step that hasn't been done in the past at OPM and, and they're working on that now. So that will help in getting to a point where some of those recommendations are closable. You mentioned sort of the, the scale of some of these um, problems. Is it reasonable to think that in a year they could, could make the needed progress or do you think that this is a multi-year issue that they'll have to keep addressing? Well, I, I think I think 
to get to a point where they would like to be, it certainly is a multi-year issue. Um, to get to a point where you can start closing some of these recommendations that have been long-standing, there's, there's a fair number that have been you know, on the books for more than five years. To get to a point where you can start closing some of those, you know, that, that can be done within a year. Uh, to get to a point where you've, you've addressed you know, a wide spectrum of the outstanding issues is going to take a little longer. You mentioned uh, turnover as one of the obstacles. What other obstacles do you see within the agency to achieving these these goals? I, I think I think resources is an issue. Uh, I think the the CIO office at OPM has chronically been understaffed. Uh, one of the things that the current leadership team is addressing is taking a look at you know what it's going to take to essentially erase the technology debt at OPM that's existed for a long time. Uh, that is, there's an independent study that is being done or, or may even be completed by now. What that's going to be able to do is point to areas where additional resources are going to be valuable. Do you see um, Congress tracking this issue at all? Is, it, is there a push there to, to maybe provide them with more funding? I think I think there is. Um, it's it's certainly an environment where uh, OPM still gets attention because of the IT issues that have existed there. Mm -hmm. I think if a a solid business case can be put before Congress as to here's why these things are needed and here's the support for it, I, I think they might be willing to listen. Thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. For a preview of each newscast, sign up for our daily program guide right now by texting GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow, so talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here? Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management is great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. And this gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment, and it keeps we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. So what about endpoints, Sean? 
How does this affect or impact visibility? Yeah, at the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint, allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in an endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real-time. What this means is a small to medium agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community. So a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.